praying for us and reading the scriptures. Thank you especially for praying for the world leaders um, in a time of uncertainty and um, possible war. I think it's imperative that the, the church uh, goes for the Lord and prays for the leaders, that they're wise, that God would grant them wisdom and guidance in this difficult time. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, as you can tell, I'm still battling a cough, battling a cold. Got back from East Bay Retreat and was coughing and spread germs to everyone I met up there in East Bay. I'm sure several members right now are bitter towards me uh, because they're battling an illness. I hear many of you are, are sick this morning, and um, so you understand, and I ask for your understanding as I <coughs> cough and, and labor and, and share germs with all of you this morning, uh, teaching for the word of, to the Word of God. Well, I'll share more, more about it in detail during our time in communion, so I'll just share briefly about uh, our ministry at East Bay this past weekend. It was a wonderful time of uh, ministry and fellowship. Um, the, their hunger for the Word of God was readily apparent. Their zealousness for God, His Word, and the Gospel was, was really a, a, cha- a challenge for my wife and I to see. And we come back refreshed and renewed. <coughs> it was interesting to go to a retreat with Elizabeth as well. Um, people were far more interested in her than they were of me. Uh, after each session, a small group of men and women would gather around me to ask questions and, and fellowship and dialogue. And I'd look over and there's a huge mob of people around Elizabeth. And literally, I would have to wait until Elizabeth was done <laughs> with her appointments with people uh, after each session. Well, physically, <coughs> it was very difficult because of my cough which is uh, with me to this day. But other than that, it was a blessed time of ministry, a blessed time of fellowship. And I did something that I usually don't do for this retreat. <coughs> I took seven sermons for six sessions. I had an extra sermon that I took along with me that I, I somewhat felt burdened by the Holy Spirit uh, to give upon preparing for the retreat, studying for it. I took an extra sermon. And at the last minute, I, I switched, I took out one sermon, and I preached from Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> I preached on loving the local church. And I, I thank God for the Spirit's leading, because the response was huge. I, I hit a raw nerve uh, in the body. Pastor John Shim and his wife, to the church leaders, all the way to young believers, <clears throat> all shared with me how they were so blessed by that particular study. Um, it seems that they're younger believers age-wise. Most of them are collegians. And I think part and parcel with being young, you don't think about the church. You don't think about the leaders. You don't think about church leadership. And for me to go and really encourage them to love the church by, by the grace of God it was a blessing to them. And in returning to Cornerstone, I was reminded how precious these truths are about the local church <clears throat> and how all of us, we all need to be reminded about loving Christ and loving Christ's church. Some of you might be the first time hearing it. Others, maybe you've heard it before, but an important reminder for all of us. And just to start us off, I'll share it by saying that uh, we, we came back from the Bay Area Tuesday morning we left around 9 a.m., seven-hour drive down to Orange County. We stopped over at our home, and on our drive down, Gary called. 
and told us that Annabelle was born, their child, their baby daughter was born on Monday night. And we told them, well, we want to come by and pray with you. So we got home around 5 p.m., took an hour layover, an hour break, just to wash up a little bit. And we drove down to Saddleback Valley Hospital <coughs> to um, uh, Cindy's, um, um, Cindy's room. And we saw baby Annabelle and Nathan and, and Gary and Cindy. And what a precious child. What a precious and beautiful baby. Um, and Gary told us this sweet story, Gary and Cindy both. And I called him this morning actually to get permission because I don't know, it was kind of private. I wanted to make sure. Thanks, brother. I got two up here, but one more won't hurt. Right. Um, but a- after uh, Annabelle was born, the next day, <coughs> Gary was holding Annabelle, and their older son Nathan crawled up into uh, Cindy's bed next to Cindy. He's about two and a half years old. He laid there for a few moments, and Nathan looked up to Cindy's mom, and then he asked her, "Mommy, do you still like me?" How sweet is that? I mean. Cindy responded, you know, of course, Nathan, I love you. And he hugged him and held him and reaffirmed his lo- her love for her son. Well, speaking for Cornerstone Bible Church, <coughs> I want to ask the members of Cornerstone this morning, do you still love our church? Do you still love Cornerstone? In the past four years, Our church has been relatively established. Maybe now you're in a new job. Maybe you've started a new relationship, making good money. Maybe you started a new family and you have new children in the household. Maybe you're involved in a new hobby or a new interest in your life. Maybe you've been overseas and you've experienced ministry with other churches. So many new and exciting things in our lives. But the question that I want to press upon you this morning Representing Cornerstone is this. Do you still love our church? Does your heart burn with zeal for Cornerstone? Is Cornerstone one of your life's priorities? I mean, what place does Cornerstone have in your heart? Do you think about the church during the week? Once, twice, three, or once a day, or maybe you don't even think about the church at all? What place in your priorities of life What's Cornerstone have in your life? Well, brothers and sisters, <coughs> if you love the Lord, you must love the local church. You must love, if you love Christ, you must love the church, and you must love Cornerstone Bible Church. Love for God means loving fellow believers. 1 John 3.11 John says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, all the way back in the Old Testament. <clears throat> that we should love one another. First John 4.11 Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, meaning the church, fellow believers. First John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his fellow believer, the church whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. First John 4.21 Excuse me, and Christ has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, some people have said, James, I will die for Christ, but I will not die for the church. Is that biblically accurate? 
Is that a sound belief? Is that right doctrine? I believe no, that is wrong. That is inconsistent with the scriptures. Why? Because Ephesians 5.29 says that God loves His church and Christ died for the church. So if you're a follower of Christ and Christ's example is dying for the church, then we must die for the church. If Christ loved the body so much that He gave His life for the church <coughs> and He calls us to follow in His example then our discipleship means giving our lives for the brethren. Well, some have said, when, when they say that, that means you cannot follow Christ. If you're not willing to die for the church, you are not following Christ. Others have said, I will sacrifice, deny myself, and live for Christ, but I will not sacrifice for the church. I will not deny myself of things in this world because of the church, because of fellow believers. I will not live for the church. Again, what kind of wrong thinking is that? That kind of mentality, that idea, that doctrine didn't come from the scriptures. Look at the example of Paul in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, everything I endure, I endure for the church, the elect. <laughs> he writes in 2 Corinthians 2.4 about the depth of his love for the church at Corinth. And that the church at Corinth was not a church worthy of Paul's love. It's not like the church at Corinth was this model church, an evangelistic church had a great heart for the Lord and doctrine and purity. No, this church was steeped in sin and compromise. If any church was unworthy of the love of Paul, it was the Corinthian church. But even that church, Paul says, I want you to know the depth of my love for you. And then in 2 Corinthians 6, he talks about his trials, his tribulations, his disappointments and heartaches in ministry. <coughs> How endurance, troubles, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. And then he says, <coughs> We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Open wide our hearts to you. Open wide your hearts to us because we are not withholding our affections to you. Again, I want to ask all of you, do you love the local church? Do you love our church? Let's consider this morning five perspectives on the local church this morning. God's perspective, Apostle Paul's, the prevailing perspective of 21st century Christians in Orange County, California, very specific, and the prevailing perspective of Christians in Jerusalem in the first century, <coughs> and the final perspective is a surprise, uh, will be revealed later. It will stick, cause you to stick around. Well, first of all, God's view of the local church. What is God's view of the local church? It's not surprising to me that so many have a wrong view of the church. It's because so many Christians have a wrong view of the gospel. They have a wrong view of Christ. They have a wrong view of scripture. It is no wonder they have a wrong view of the church. I, I, I firmly believe if a Christian has a right view of Christ, right view of the gospel, right view of the word of God, they will have a right view of the church because that's what the Bible teaches. What is God's view of the local church? He has a high view of the local church. He has a high view. God chose one people, one group, to reveal His manifold wisdom, to impart His truth. And what group is that? Ephesians 3.10, the church. The church was hidden in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. 
<coughs> and has been revealed in the New Testament. And what is that mystery? Ephesians chapter 1, it is the church. Dr. Robert Solsey, in his book, The Church and God's Program, begins his book in this way, quote, Throughout the course of history, God has worked in the world in a variety of ways through individuals, nations, and peoples. <coughs> the focus of His present work is the church, that which was begun in the Scriptures, as men and women were called to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, continues today in the church as Christ builds her up. Not only is Christ building His church, but it is the primary instrument through which He ministers in the world. As Christ was sent by the Father, so the church is sent by Christ into the world. Not only does God have a high view of the church, as I shared before, God loves the local church. Secondly, God loves the local church. Ephesians 5, Paul exhorts the husbands to love your own wives, to be her leader to be her provider, to be her protector. He must be such a man that he seeks to protect her so much that he's willing to give his life, that he would die in her stead. And the example that he points to is the love of Christ. How Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. <coughs> It is revealed by the awesome truth in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. That the church was bought not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but the church was purchased, redeemed, with the precious blood of Christ. Blood of Christ pointing to His death, to His life. And thirdly, God has promised to bless and build the church. Matthew 16, 18. And Peter made that statement. Lord, you are the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel. Christ said to Peter, on this rock, <coughs> I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is a profound promise of our Lord, declaring a simple principle, a yet a powerful principle, that He will build the church of Christ, that it will not be destroyed, just like He promised Abraham, that his seed will be scattered throughout the world as a number of stars that are in the sky, number of sand that are in the seashore. The, the people of Israel will remain until the end. Christ promises again to the church that the church cannot and will not be destroyed, that to his return he will build the church up. That is why, as a pastor of Cornerstone, I am not in the business of building this church. People come to me and say, James, what is your vision for Cornerstone? What are your future plans? How are you going to build this church up? I have no plans. Bob and I, we get together and we have no master vision, master plan. We have no secret plans or agendas. Our job is just to follow Christ because the job of building the church belongs to Christ. He will do it and He is doing it. I, for one, do not want to compete with Christ. He will do it and He is doing it. The church will be victorious. This is the winning team. We will stand in the end. That is God's view. Let's look at the Apostle Paul's view of the local church. 
<coughs> Turn with me to 1 Timothy 3.15. 1 Timothy 3.15. From here we'll see um, three aspects of Paul's view of the local church. 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul tells Timothy, I write these things to you so that you will know (coughs) how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. First of all, Paul tells us that the church is God's family. Paul uses the word oikos, household, here in verse 15. Oikos, the literal meaning is house. But the idea here is household, family. How do we know that? Because the same exact word is used in verse 4. The elder must manage his own oikos well. Family, not just a building. He must not be a good you know, handyman fixing the plumbing and drywall and patching up the house. That's not what Paul's talking about. He must be a well manager of his oikos, his family, his household. Verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his oikos, his family, how can he take care of God's church? <coughs> Likewise, in verse 12, a deacon must be the household of but one wife and must manage his children and his oikos, his household as well. So in verse 15, Paul is referring not to a building but the family that lives in the building. So for Paul, the church, first of all, the local church is God's family. God's family. Ephesians 2.19 You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Galatians 6.10 Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So Paul's first view of the church is that we're a spiritual family. That God is our Father. That by Christ we are brothers and sisters. (coughs) That when God saved us, He saved us individually. But He meant for us to live the Christian life in the context of a family. If you've never heard this, it's important that you understand That while salvation is individual, sanctification is communal. There is never any teaching in the Bible of this personal relationship with God. It's Jesus and I. Show me a single passage where where the Bible calls us to walk in Christ individually. The New Testament, the bulk of it is, is, is pointed towards the local church. Right? I think, I think, um, 23 out of the 27 books outside the Gospels is concerning the local church. In the book of Revelation, two chapters are concerning the local church. Salvation is individual. You're saved alone. You're not saved by your family, by your ethnicity, by your community. Salvation is individual. But once you are saved, you are transformed and baptized into the body of Christ. So while we are saved alone, we do not live alone. Paul saw the Christian life live solely in the context of the local church. Lone Ranger Christian is a foreign concept to Paul. Romans 14, 7 and 8. 
Paul says, for none of us lives to himself alone. None of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Secondly, in Paul's perspective, the church belongs to God. Consider the second description of Paul here in verse 15. Church of the living God. By that, he's telling us that the church proceeded from God. The church, therefore, belongs to God. <coughs> the divine originator, the owner of the church is God. Throughout the New Testament, God makes it clear that the church is God's dearest creation and possession. Why does the church belong to God? We talked about it already. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Acts 20, 28. But what Paul told the Ephesian elders, be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. That Christ purchased the church with his own life. This cannot be said by any other group of people in the world. By any other organization, institution can ever claim such a lofty and privileged position of being bought by Christ except the local church. And finally, verse 15, the last part, the local church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Pillar and foundation. <clears throat> the word pillar is stulos. It tells us that it actually holds up the truth. In Ephesus, to which these letters were written, the word stulos, pillar, had a special significance. In that city, the greatest glory of Ephesus was the Temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. One of its distinct features of this temple was its pillars. This temple contained 127 pillars. Every one of them, the gift of a king. All were made of marble. Some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. And on these pillars were placed a statue of a famous man or a famous god or goddess. It was set on the top of a pillar so that everyone entering that temple can see these idols, these kings, these gods and goddesses. And that is the idea here. That the church's duty is to hold up the truth, a pillar of the truth, <coughs> in such a way that all men may see it. The local church is a living, breathing pillar that exists to exalt and honor God's Word. That is why it is so imperative that the church conducts themselves in a manner worthy of Christianity. Why? Because we're validating the truth. We're saying that God's Word is true. Look at our lives. We, ex we exist to affirm, to raise up, if you will, the Word of God. Not only that, Paul said the church, the local church is the foundation of the truth. Foundation, meaning it is the base, the groundwork, the main support for truth. Now, it does not mean that the truth of God is dependent on the church. The Word of God came before the church, right? In the beginning was the Word, Word was God, Word was with God, Logos. The Scriptures came, was existed before the church. So the Bible is not dependent upon us, that's not what it means. But it does mean that the church is the God-ordained base upon which truth 
is preserved and maintained. So, the church is the pillar. It holds the truth high so that it is not hidden from the world. <coughs> Secondly, it is the foundation. It holds the truth firm. It does not collapse under the weight of false teaching. Under the pressure of conformity to this world. These two descriptions of Paul highlight the importance of the local church in relation to the truth of God's word. Paul is saying practically that God's truth is not able to stand without the church. God's truth is not able to stand. Now positionally, God will build His church. It will stand forever. But practically, God's truth is not able to stand without the church. implication of Paul's words is that the truth of God's word will fall into disaster if the church did not exist. <clears throat> Therefore, he is calling the believers to faithful conduct in the local body. You, know, you need to know how to conduct yourselves because of the church's relation to the word of God. The church is the pillar of God's word. The church is the foundation of God's word. Therefore, Timothy, it is imperative that believers obey the scriptures and live lives of purity and holiness and obedience to God's word. Therefore, I think in your outline I have some questions there for you. Is it possible to have a vibrant spiritual life and successfully nurture our relationship with God apart from the local church? Is that possible? <coughs> Is it possible to move closer to God and farther away from the church? I've met people who said that they are doing better spiritually now that they've stopped going to church. So James, once I stop going, I've been going for a while now, and I'm doing better spiritually. Is that possible? Are there alternatives to the local church when it comes to our spiritual growth? Are Christian books, Christian radio, Christian TV, Christian colleges, seminaries, parishes sufficient? Is active and in-depth participation an option in terms of our discipleship? According to the New Testament, the answer is a resounding no. It's a resounding no. Wayne Mack says, The local church is the primary means through which God accomplishes His plan in the world. It is His ordained instrument for calling the lost to Himself and the context in which He sanctifies those who are born into His family. <coughs> Therefore, God expects and even demands a commitment to the church from everyone who claims to know Him, end quote. Wow, you know, what powerful truths. Here is God's view of the local church. Here is Paul's view of the local church. Then, why is the prevailing attitude towards the local church in Orange County, California, in the 21st century so low? If that is true, why is that in our context, the view of the local church is at an all-time low? I told this story many times. You heard it. Still laugh. If you haven't heard it, laugh harder. Um, true story from the 800 helpline from Butterball Turkey Company. A lady found a frozen turkey. It's been in her freezer for over 10 years. She called the helpline. Hey, can I still eat this turkey? 
And she's like, yeah, it's still edible, but it's been frozen for 10 years. It's going to be rough. <coughs> All the flavor's gone. It's not going to be tasty. And she said, oh, well, then we'll just give it to the church. Right? Right? <laughs> I mean, it's funny, right? Isn't it funny? Funny to me when I read it. But it's kind of funny in an ironic way because it is so true. That's the common attitude of people today. They'll give the church what is left over. They'll give the church the leftovers. What they don't want, what they don't need. They have time, strength, energy, effort left over. They'll give to the church. That is the pervasive view of OCC. What are OCC? <coughs> Orange County Christians. Right? Orange County Christians living in a lap of luxury and affluence, upperly mobile, sunny Southern California. Right? This is the pervasive view of most Orange County Christians. What are some marks of Orange County Christians? Let me highlight some to you. They come to church late. Right? Come to church late. These are people who are never late to work. Never late to school. Never late to important meetings or engagements. No way. They're seen as, by their co-workers as just prompt, hard-working, faithful. And yet they habitually and regularly come late to church. It's a, it becomes a part of who they are. Right? Part of their character, part of their personality. It is their reputation of just slowly coming to church late. Coming late to church is not a time management issue. It is not a discipline issue. It is at the core a serious spiritual issue. It is one of those spiritual issues that are the most difficult to address because it is, man, it is just so, like, right? It is so, you know, I don't want to offend anyone. I'm not here to hurt anybody. But it is like kind of pathetic, right? Isn't it kind of sad to, like, if you have to tell somebody who's like 21, hey, you got to brush your teeth, right? Or, you know, you got to wash your face. Or, I don't know, you know, when you come out in public, you got to put clothes on. Like, well, you know, you're 20 years old, you're 30 years old. You're too old for that. Now, to tell believers who are quote-unquote mature to come to church on time, it's like you don't want to address it because it is not encouraging to the person listening, nor the person giving that message. Because it is so, right? I mean, it is just an immature thing. But that's a mark of an Orange County Christian. A second mark is <coughs> not coming at all. Church attendance, participation is sporadic, seen as optional. If I make three out of four services in a month, that's pretty good, James. Because right? I'm an OCC. Right? Or not serving the church. Right? Not serving. They, they, they're excellent at work, excellent students. They're serving at church. It's very... Very mediocre. Very mediocre. They serve when it is easy. They serve when it fits your schedule and preferences. They have an entertainment movie theater mentality. Right? I come to church to be entertained. The show is done. I'm out of here. Right? Don't they have ushers to clean up after my popcorn and the trash that I leave? Don't they have workers? I don't want to, you know, cut across any union lines and take anybody's job. Right? I've paid my pay. I'm here to be entertained. This movie's over. I'm out the door. <coughs> they have a flippant attitude towards church, church functions, communion, baptism, Bible study. They have 
you know, they, they do not generally submit to church leaders, to elders. Right? They have an anti-authoritarian attitude. Right? They don't want accountability. They want to be free. They want to be individuals. Some adjectives that might be used to describe a typical OCC Christian, OC Christian, is apathetic, low commitment, fickle, disloyal, flaky, (coughs) laid back, so on and so on. Many OCCs are permanently church hopping. Are permanently church hopping. It doesn't mean they go to different churches every week. They go to different churches every few years. Right? They go to one church for two, three years. Okay, it's now time to move on. We've been here for what? Three years now. Man, that's, that's too much commitment. They're asking too much of me. Time to go on. You talk to Christians who've been 10 years, they've been going to like four, five, six churches in a 10 year span. Now, ultimately, what does this mean about OCC, right? It means they don't love the church, right? It means they don't love the church, or they, have a lo- they, have, they, have, they lack true love for the church, and it means their love for the church, love of Christ is weak. Alright. Now I'll talk about the end, but does this describe you? Are you an Orange County Christian? I mean, let's be challenged by the prevailing attitudes towards the local church in Jerusalem, Israel, in the first century. Go with me to Acts chapter 2, 41 through 47. If we were to use one word to describe the early church, one word that encapsulated their heart, one word that, that described their heart, it would be the word devoted. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves. I looked this word up in our dictionary at home. Seren bought this $80 dictionary from Price Club. Webster's Encyclopedic Unabridged Dictionary, new deluxe edition, 2200 pages. Right, we got that thing out. First time looked it up, looked up any word in that dictionary. The word was devoted. And it said to appropriate, to concentrate on a particular pursuit, occupation, purpose, or cause. <coughs> Religious dedication. Zealous or ardent in attachment, loyalty, or affection. These are words that we would use to describe the New Testament church. The verb here, devote, is proskartero. It's a compound word. Kartero means strong, and pros is an intensive. It means strong towards. It's in the present active participle. It means that it's not a one-time act. They were not devoted one time and they moved on. No, participle. It was a continual, continual devotion, a steadfastness, an enduring. It's talking about devotion in the hardest sense, single-mindedness, to persevere, to be constantly diligent. These believers are devoted, and they're devoted to five things, Luke tells us in Acts 2. Verse 42, they they devoted themselves (coughs) to the apostles' teaching. Not to the act of teaching, but to the doctrine, didascalia. The doctrine of the apostles. They devoted themselves to the word of God. And who are they? These 3,000 who had just become Christians. So it tells us devotion to doctrine is not just for the mature. It's not just for the theologues and the academic or pastors. It means these are believers who just became Christians and their first devotion 
was the word of God, was doctrine, deep commitment. Tells us that these believers were continually in season and out of season. Whether they felt like it or not, they were consistently committed to study, understand, and apply the Word of God. Secondly, they were committed to the church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves, that devote goes to all the clauses. They devoted themselves <coughs> to the fellowship. That article, though, is in the Greek, meaning... They were, not committing, they were not committed to the act of fellowship. They were committed to the fellowship, the koinonia. They were committed to that group, their local body of believers. They had a high commitment. They were steadfastly loyal and committed to the fellowship. Meaning, their commitment to the church was equal to their commitment to the Word of God. That the local church was one of their highest priorities of life. That their lives revolved around the church. They lived, they ate, and breathed ministry in the church and evangelism in the world. That was their heart towards the church. You know, this is um, Super Bowl Sunday, so I have to stick in a football illustration somewhere. So I thought this is an appropriate time to do this. Um... Marcellus Wiley, right, is an all-pro defensive end for the San Diego Chargers. <coughs> he wrote four articles in the LA Times this week. If you guys read it, you're blessed. If not, it's still online. You can download it. He started his article this way. I could die young. I definitely know I feel worse at my age than my peers. So I know that seeing people my age, I may die before him. I've had times in my career when I couldn't walk but I play football. People don't understand that. You can't get up middle of the night to get some relief. You have to have an apple juice jar next to the bed so you can go to the bathroom. But next morning I wake up and I run 100 miles per hour. As football players, our hands are a mess. You come into the game with 10 fingers, with 10 fingers that point straight, you leave with hopefully half of them pointing straight. I'm down to five. Bruce Smith has no good ones. It looks as if hands... If he has a tennis ball in his hands all the time, he plays football. His commitment to football was such that his body was secondary. His prior in life is to play football. Well, that kind of devotion to a game, how much more believers to the church, and that's what the New Testament church personified. That kind of reckless abandonment kind of commitment to the local body of believers. Thirdly, they were committed to the breaking of bread, communion, right? High view of communion instituted by the Lord on the last day before His death, practiced by the New Testament church, commanded by Paul. They rejoiced to gather together and to remember the cross. Fourthly, they were committed to prayer. Prayer was not a, a, a side activity. It was not a secondary event. It was part and parcel of the ministry of the church. They were devoted to intercessory prayer for one another. <coughs> and finally, verses 44 and 45, joyful giving. Right. They didn't consider things as belonging to them. Their, their, their giving was not 10%, but 100%. They belonged to the Lord, and they gave themselves sacrificially to the Lord's work. And what, is, what was God's response? Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. 
broke bread in their homes, ate together, praising God. And verse 47, God's response, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Oh, we've seen God's view, Paul's view. We've seen OCC's view. We've seen the first century Christian's view, Christian's attitude. Well, finally, for what it's worth, (coughs) let me share with you my attitude towards the local church. My attitude towards the local church. First of all, I love the pastors and elders who serve the local church. I love these men who sacrificially and um, uncompromisingly labor for the elect. I love these men. Men like John Smith, Peter Smith, John Coe, Tim Coyle, Todd Dykstra, John Shim, Scott Bashore, Larry Pettigrew, Alex Montoya, Bob Hahn, Ben Christensen. I absolutely love these men. I love them because... They love the Lord and they show their love for the Lord by living it out, by loving Christ's church. I love them because they suffer and sacrifice and labor for God's people without asking what's in it for me. I love them because I know it is their soul heart cry to endure all things for the sake of the elect. It's not about them, but it's about the Lord and about the Lord's church. You know, I've had the privilege to talk with these pastors behind closed doors. To gather in a huddle and lick our wounds and share our battle scars. I met with them privately. I, 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 I wept with them. I stayed up into nights, long into the nights, sharing our hurts and disappointments. And I've seen through all their hurt, all their anguish, they love the church. Man, I love that. It reminds me of Paul. How he tells the church at Thessalonica how he has a fond affection for them as a mother nursing a child. As a father loving his own children. And then he tells them in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, What is our hope, our joy, our crown? Is it not you? You are our glory. You are our joy. That was Paul's heart. And I see Paul's heart in these pastors these elders who love the church, and therefore I love them. That is why Hebrews says, submit to your leaders. Submit to their leadership. Submit to their teaching. Obey them. Because they labor as men who will keep an account, be held account before the Lord for you. Secondly, I love the institution of the local church. I love going to East Bay. I love going to Faith Bible Church. Light off. I love going to churches and ministering. I love Cornerstone. I love coming here. I love everything about the church. I mean, I think it's heaven on earth. For me, my highlight in the week is when I spend time with you guys. You know, Sarin and I, you know, we went to market and it was like busy and we didn't, with all strangers. And then we saw some members of our church and our hearts were filled with joy. We love everything about the church. I love to praise God on Sunday mornings, to stand up together and sing in one, with, with one voice the same lyrics, praising our God. I love that. I love when a man comes up here and opens up the Bible and he says, open your Bibles, and we all open our Bibles, and we go to the same passage, and we read God's Word together. 
I love it when a man of God comes up here and he says, let's pray. And he pours out his heart in intercessing for the needs of the world, of the church, of non-believers. And we all burden together in prayer and wrestle with God in prayer together. I mean, I love hearing the Word of God preached live. I mean, I love it. I heard Bob's sermon, you know, uh, through the internet. I mean, great sermon, Bob. But, I mean, I wasn't here, so it was, wasn't as good. I heard Ben's teaching on, on flock. Man, good sermon, brother, for popularitis. But, you know, it's, it's nothing like it than hearing it live. Uh, you, tape, CDs, even videos don't do it justice. I love baptism. I love communion. The unity we have in Christ. We celebrate these two ordinances. And I love the fellowship of the believers. And then finally, my attitude towards the local church. I love the believers here at Cornerstone Bible Church. I love Cornerstone. People say, but James, you're the pastor. You have to love us. That's kind of true. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that's like saying, James... You love Elizabeth only because you're her father. What? No. I love my daughter. Not because I have to love I'm her father. I, mean, I love my daughter. Likewise, I love the church. Why? Because we're running the race together. Man, it's a long race, a lonely race, a difficult race. And man, it's so good to run the race together and have others suffer with you. There are so many Christians who cheat and compromise. I don't, am I judgmental? Maybe I am. I'm preaching on do not judge next week, so I preach to myself. But man, there seems to be so many believers who like take shortcuts, right? That they don't run the race marked out for us. They run another race, an easier race, a race going downhill when we're supposed to go uphill. But I love the fact that we're running this difficult race together. I love that we're serving together, that we're in the trenches together, right? We're battling together for the same thing. I love the fact that we're a family, that we all have a relationship that goes beyond Sunday mornings, that we have relationships with one another that is deep, the loyalty, the commitment that we have, the intimacy that we have that is wrought by God and God alone. I mean, with the original group here, I've been with you guys for, what, 10 years now. My goodness, 10 years. I was 23 when I started out with you guys. 23. Bob was 27. <coughs> Bob, was, Bob was still young, but man, 27. Sorin was 19. I mean, Elaine, Phil, Jones, Sue, some of you guys, you guys were like 13, right? <laughs> Joe Pio, you were like five years old. <laughs> My goodness. And we began. Man, few churches throughout the years have asked me to come, leave Cornerstone and join them. I'm like, what? Even for a second, I don't entertain those thoughts. Right? Even for a second, it's even like there's no, no desire, there's no attraction whatsoever. I'm like, my wife and I, we love Cornerstone. And if God allows us to die here, man, we will love it. Our love for Cornerstone has only grown with time. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love the local church? Do you love Cornerstone Bible Church today? Or have other things... Have other things attracted you and taken your love away? Are you an Orange County Christian? Are you apathetic? Are you low on commitment? Are you fickle? Are you a flake? Are you laid back? 
Well, our Lord loves the church. I'll close with Revelation 3, 7 through 9. I'll just read to you guys. Christ says, the church in, in Philadelphia, He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews but are not, are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Christ says, these false brethren who are liars, I will make them come before you, fall down at your feet, and I will make them acknowledge. Christ says that I love the church. He wants to hear it, even from the enemies of God, that He loved the church. How much more, as believers, ought we love the church of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. God, even if, even with all my, all my heart and my passion and zeal this morning, we can't even scratch the surface of the depth of your love for the church. Lord, we talk about love for the church and we point to times that we've sacrificed or maybe resources that we've given or, or some menial works that we've done. But when you talk about loving the church, you point to the cross. You point to your life given over to death because of your love for the church. And that is the depth of your love for us. Lord, we can't even begin to scratch the surface of that. No one here has shed a single drop of blood for the brethren, but you gave your life. Lord, may we through the scriptures understand and know that love. And may our heart burn with passion, compassion, and sincere love for you and for what you love, the local church, so that we might be a pillar and a foundation for your truth, so that the world might see it and turn to you and be saved, and the body might be a pure bride devoted unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Pastor James, for the word. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward, please. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he instituted the ordinance of communion, and we'll be taking communion during our second hour uh, today. The Bible is clear that one of the requirements for taking communion is that uh, the participant be a believer in Christ or a Christian. And so if you're visiting us with, with us today and you've never taken communion with us, we'd like to invite you to participate in our communion service during our second hour. Um, we'd ask that you would come to our, our welcoming uh, meeting over here on your left-hand side so that we can get to know you, so that we can hear your testimony, um, and we'd just like to welcome you to our communion service. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a believer, if you're not sure, if you're not exactly sure what communion is all about, we'd also invite you to come to our welcoming meeting over here on your left-hand side. Uh, we'd like to answer some questions and hear uh, about what God is doing in your life as well. Let's stand for the last song, please. <clears throat>